Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we'll be reading from verse 9 to verse 19. Romans 3, verses 9 through 19. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In our last study, we heard the Apostle Paul answering hypothetical objections which his Jewish readers could well raise in response to his teaching in chapter 2. In light of such teachings as God's impartial judgment on Jews and Gentiles, irrespective of their having or not having the law, they seem to have misunderstood him as saying that there was no particular advantage in being a Jew. They had evidently concluded that God, after all, was not faithful to his covenant to them as his people. God, you know, in the Old Testament had pledged that they would be his people. But based on what Paul was teaching, it appeared to them that God really could not be faithful to his promise if they, like the Gentiles, were going to be judged, were going to be punished, were going to be eternally condemned for lack of faith. In Jesus Christ. Now, having hands answered these Jewish objections, Paul in this section dwells at length on the fact that it's not just Gentiles but Jews, indeed, all humanity stand before God as guilty sinners. Now, sin is a word that has become almost extinct as far as our modern society and in terms of our modern vocabulary is concerned. Yet, the Word of God speaks of sin as an awful, horrible reality. Many people, if you were to ask them, are you a sinner? While they would readily say yes, they would be quick to tell you that they are not as bad a sinner after all. There are sinners, yes, but not that bad of a sinner. Well, what is sin and how is it expressed? Sin has been defined as, and one man defines it as follows, any thought, word, action, omission, or desire contrary to the law of God. I would say we sin then in thought, in attitude, in word, in action. We sin in terms of what we should do, yet not do. We sin in terms of what we should not do, and yet do. Some of the ways in which sin is described in Scripture are as follows. The thought of foolishness is sin. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 9. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Romans chapter 14 verse 23. 
Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James chapter 4, verse 17. 1 John 3, verse 4 says that sin is lawlessness. 1 John 5, verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. The word of God portrays sin as rebellion against God. Sin is essentially revolt against God. And that's what Adam and Eve did back in the Garden of Eden. They declared mutiny against God. They revolted against God. They rebelled against God. In setting forth the gravity of sin, one Bible commentator puts it like this quote. He says that sin is a terrible reality that ought to make all men shudder. It is a putrefying process which makes the vile person loathsome in the eyes of God and shameful in the light of righteousness and true holiness. It is something that cannot be gotten rid of through civilization or refinement or culture, for witness the fact that the most rottenness of iniquity, the most shameful cesspools of vice, are often found in the heart of countries laying claim to the highest state of civilization. Where can you go in this wide world where human depravity is not evident in dishonesty, pride, murder, selfishness, lying, profanity, intemperance, licentiousness, strife, theft, incest, and uncleanness of many varieties? Sin is a mortal disease that first defiles and ultimately destroys both body and soul, end quote. Eric Alexander, and some of us might know that name, says that sin is not only an offense which needs forgiving, it is a pollution which needs cleansing. And here in our text, Paul highlights both the gravity and the universality of sin. Paul talks about the seriousness of sin, and he speaks also of the pervasiveness of sin. And this arises from his rhetorical question and answer found in verse 9, because he raises this question, What then, are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So to the question as to whether there are any advantages in being a Jew, Paul had answered in the affirmative. Remember in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, much in every way. Of course, they had the law to them were committed, the oracles of God. But here in chapter 3, verses 9 and following, we see that with regard to the far more important question as to whether Jews are better than Gentiles, Paul's response is a resounding no. He's saying that when all is said and done, the one defining reality that runs common to both Jews and Gentiles, indeed to the entire world, is that all are under sin. That is to say, they are under the power and dominion of sin, which means that even as Gentiles are without excuse, chapter 1, verse 20, so are Jews without excuse, chapter 2, verse 1, as they are all guilty before God. Consequently, if you go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, what was true of Jews, what was true of Gentiles, also true of Jews, namely that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth 
by their unrighteousness. Both Jews and Gentiles are guilty in one way or another of suppressing the truth of God's word. Indeed, Paul will later reiterate the universality of sin later in verse 20 of our text where he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty or accountable before God. Every human being is tainted with the germ of sin. Every human being is under the power and dominion of sin outside of the saving grace of our Lord Jesus. Now from verse 10 all the way through to verse 18, which we want to focus on this morning, Paul cites seven Old Testament passages which emphatically underscore the truth that all humanity lie under the power, under the dominion of sin. Seven Old Testament passages. You say, why does he have to adduce so many scriptures? I learned this long ago. The best illustrations are taken from scripture. Paul calls here into account seven Old Testament passages, all of which underscore the universality and dominion of sin. In verses 10 through 12, verses 10 through 12, which declare that none is righteous, none understands or seeks God, these verses are drawn from Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, as well as Psalm 53, 1 to 3. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, is a citation from Psalm 5 and verse 9. Verse 13 of asps is, under their lips is taken from Psalm 140 and verse 3, uh, verse 14a, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness is a reference to Psalm 10 and verse 7. Verses 15 through 17, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruined misery, the way of peace they have not known derives from Isaiah chapter 59 verses 7 and 8. And then verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes, is a quotation of Psalm 36 and verse 1. Seven Old Testament passages Paul adduces here to underscore the point that all humanity lie under the power and guilt of sin. And in synthesizing these verses regarding humanity under the power of sin, under the guilt of sin, we could state the following six truths. Six things I want to bring to your attention this morning. The first is this, that under the power and dominion of sin, humanity is incapable of being righteous. Under the power, under the guilt, under the dominion of sin, humanity is incapable of being righteous righteous. Look at verse 10. None is righteous, not one. Look at verse 12b. No one does good, not even one. That is a blanket categorical statement. Now the reason many, especially those who are steeped in their religiosity and sense of personal goodness will balk at such statement, will protest strongly against such statements as we find here, stems from the fact that they have a low view of sin, and an extremely superficial view of the holiness of God. If we really understood, 
If we really understood the gravity of sin, if we really understood and appreciated the awesome holiness of God, then what is going to happen is this sin is going to appear, as Paul puts it, exceedingly sinful. We are going to come to see the gravity and the horror of sin. And we are going to come to see that outside of the saving grace of God, this statement is very true that there is absolutely no one who is righteous and no one does good. The question is, what exactly does the word of God mean when it says none is righteous? No one does good, not even one. To begin with, it does not mean, listen carefully, it does not mean that everyone does what is bad, does what is evil all the time. It doesn't mean that no one is incapable of doing any kind of good. Rather, what it means is that all the good a person could ever do, regardless of all the good a person could ever do, one could never do that which is good enough for the most holy and righteous God of heaven. When the word of God asserts that none is righteous, to be righteous in this context means, as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, He says this, it means to be blameless with regard to God and to our fellow man to live in perfect harmony to God's law. Which means this, we are doing right all the time. In short, the point of the text is this, that in and of themselves, in and of themselves, no one is good enough to generate or earn for themselves a righteous standing before the holy God of heaven. And if the question is asked, why is that so? Why is it that our goodness is not good enough? Why is it categorically true that there is absolutely no one righteous? Well, to begin with, the spiritual condition of every human being outside of Jesus Christ explains why the text is true. Why it is absolutely true that no one is righteous. You see, according to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, Dead in trespasses and sins, men and women outside of Christ follow the dictates of Satan. They are enslaved to their fleshly desires. Indeed, they lack the ability to please God, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, living according to the flesh. Their minds are set on the things of the flesh. We, here's what Romans 8, 7 and 8 says. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Additionally, that none is righteous, not even one, is explained by Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. What does the prophet Isaiah say? The prophet Isaiah says this concerning our good works, that all our righteousnesses are as polluted rags, as the King James puts it, as filthy rags in God's sight. Do you know why they are as filthy rags in God's sight? Because they are coming from a source that is polluted and defiled. They are coming from an unredeemed, unregenerate nature. They are coming from a heart in which lies all the seeds of corruption and wickedness and depravity. That's why they're not accepted. 
So what all of this means is that there's no amount of religion, no amount of rituals, no amount of ceremonies that will ever make one righteous or put one in right relationship with God. Based on the fact that we are dead in trespasses and sins outside of Christ, we're born with a sinful nature, our hearts are corrupt and need to be regenerated, therefore it is, in that sense, no one truly does righteousness. No one is righteous, not even one. No one does good, that is to say, no one does the kind of good that God will accept. So under the power of sin, humanity is incapable of righteousness. But notice secondly from our text that under the power of sin, humanity is ignorant of God. Humanity is ignorant of God. Look at the A part of verse 11. Here's what he says. No one understands. No one understands. You say, well, what are you talking about, Patrick? Because I know people who are not saved and they understand much of the Bible. What exactly does Paul mean when he says no one understands? What is he talking about? Well, for sure, he's not speaking of sinful man lacking a cerebral intellectual notion of God and of his truth. What he's referring to is sinful man's deficiency with respect to moral, a moral and spiritual understanding of God and of the truth of God. Indeed, as Jesus in John chapter 8 verses 43 to 44 spoke to unbelieving Jews of his day, Jesus made exactly this point that they were lacking understanding. And here's the point. In the very same breath, Jesus explained to them why they were lacking understanding. Here's what he told them in John 8, 43, 44. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. You see, under the power of sin, what is Jesus saying here? Under the power of sin, men and women are what? Blinded by sin. And because they are blinded by sin, they do not have a disposition to submit to the word of God. Notice what our Lord Jesus said to the people. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, humanity outside of Christ, their mind is empty. Paul speaks here of the futility of their mind. They are, he says in verse 18, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 puts it like this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that explains, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, why the natural person, why the unsaved person will not come to Christ and be saved. Here's what he says, for the natural person does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. My friend, such is the frightening extent, such is the frightening extent of man's ignorance of God under the power and dominion of sin. Man under sin is in a bad way. First of all, he is incapable of producing the righteousness that God requires. And secondly, he in his sin, man in his sin, is ignorant of God. 
Well, not only is humanity under the power of sin incapable of being righteous and are ignorant of God, but notice thirdly, look at B part of verse 11. Under the power of sin, humanity is indisposed toward God. Under the power of sin, humanity is indisposed toward God. Because here's what um, Paul, quoting the scripture, says. He says this, no one seeks God. I have had endless discussions, call it debate if you, if you will, debate if you will, of people who will argue and will be arguing back and forth. And, you know, I'm contending based on what scripture says. Paul says it categorically. The word says it categorically. What does it mean? He says here, no one seeks God. Class, what does that mean? What does he mean when he say no one seeks God? It means this, that no one seeks God. Simple. Now, the verb that's translated seek, the Greek verb that's translated seek, and it's very important that we get this, the Greek verb that's translated seek carries the idea of searching diligently, of pursuing earnestly. It speaks of exertion, of effort, to find out or learn about something. Now, here's the truth. We do that kind of seeking with what interests us, don't we? If, if something really holds our affection, grabs our affection, what we do? We will stop at nothing. We will lose sleep. We will stay up at night hunting down that particular thing. Now, according to our Lord Jesus, what should we seek in that manner? Remember, Mark, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, here's what he says. He says, but seek first. Same word. Seek diligently, seek ardently, seek with passion. But seek first, and that word first speaks of primacy, it speaks of priority. In other words, seek it as a matter of priority. Seek what? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It is the reign of God. What he's saying here is this, that if we're true citizens of the kingdom of God, we are going to be pursuing passionately, ardently God's rule, God's will, God's way in our lives. We are going to pursuing above everything else his righteousness. Question, do you know people outside of Christ who do that? Well, you might say, well, you know, I know people who are searching for God. They have been searching. They have been reading their Bible. But let, wait a minute. What we are going to come to see, my friends, is this, and Jesus makes it very clear. To the extent that people consciously outside of Christ are seeking God, to the extent that they are buying Bibles, doing research, trying to find the truth, let me tell you, they only can do that because God in grace by his spirit is wooing them, is drawing them, because our Lord Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 44, no man comes to the Father Except the Father, no man comes to me except what? The Father draws him, pulls him. We are to seek first God's reign, God's righteousness. But sadly, since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it has ever been the case that man, apart from the saving grace of God, has no interest in pursuing God. In fact, right, go back right to the Garden of Eden. Remember what happened. Remember what happened right after they fell in the Garden of Eden. So God comes along. 
in the cool of the day, walking in the garden of Eden. The voice of the Lord is walking in the garden. What did Adam and Eve do? Instead of running to meet God, what did they do? They ran, they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. They didn't go up after God, looking after God. God was the one who came seeking them. The tragedy of sin, my friends, is that being under its power, listen, man is not attracted to God. Under the dominion of sin, man has no interest in God. He's not attracted to God. He's not attracted to God. Why? Because at heart, he's alienated from God. He is hostile toward God in mind. That's what Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says, alienated in their minds through wicked works. Rather than being attracted to God, they are, we would say, averse to God. As such, man in his sin, under the power of sin, does all he possibly can to avoid God. Somebody as well put it like this, and there's great real truth in it. Sinful man is so hostile to God that if he could, he would get rid of God. In fact, you know today there are people who hate God, hate him with a passion, And let me just say this. Let me say this. This is sobering. This is a sobering thought. Let me show you, if this is true of us, how much more it is for the unsaved. Listen, don't we at times know the indisposition of our hearts to go after God? If we are honest, we do not always seek him with a passion and fervor that we should. We are cold. We stay away from him. We don't have fellowship with him. There is the, the, the natural proclivity of the human heart, unaided by the grace of God, is to avoid God. And the word of God is saying here that under the power of sin, man is indisposed toward God. And so the assertion that no one seeks God means that barring aside the grace of God, drawing the sinner to himself, John 6, 44, 45, no one on their own initiative comes to God. No one seeks God. In fact, Jesus puts it like this in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does the light lest his works should be exposed. But praise God as it was in the Garden of Eden when God came looking for Adam and Eve. So it is the wonderful news of the gospel, my friends, is that God in grace sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. The word of God tells us, Luke 19, verse 10, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's how a person is going to be saved. It is because the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God goes in pursuit of them. Why? Because no one outside of Christ is disposed toward seeking God. Under the power of sin, not only is humanity indisposed toward God, but fourthly, under the power of sin, humanity ignores God. Look at verse 12a. All have turned aside. This is a way of saying that their entire way of life is what? Skewed and misdirected. That's how we describe the life of the unsaved person. Turning away from God, their life, in other words, is misdirected. Their life is skewed. My friends, when it comes to the matter of relating to God, man under sin takes a 180 turn away from God. The proclivity of man is to do his own thing, is to 
Seek to live in independence of God, as the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That for you is man, that is men and women, under the power of sin. They ignore God. But fifthly, under the power of sin, and we are moving along. Under the power of sin, humanity, notice in the B part of verse 12, is ineffective for God's use. Under the power of sin, humanity is ineffective for God's use because look at what the scripture says. Paul, citing the psalm, says this. They together, the word together means what? Everybody without exception. Together, that is to say, every unsaved person, everyone who has not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, together they have become worthless. That's a word that they, our culture frowns on, our culture elevates. Uh, you know, the whole idea of self-esteem. And psychology has invaded the church to the point where many preachers are preaching self-esteem, telling people to feel good about themselves and how they are of worth. And listen, the Bible says that outside of Christ, humanity has become worthless. Worthless. And the word worthless, the Greek word worthless, means to become depraved. It means to become depraved. It connotes the idea of that which has become useless, of that which is meaningless. What the word of God is saying this is this, my friends, that the life and course of the person outside of Jesus Christ is a life of futility. It's a life of worthlessness. It's a life of meaninglessness. Sin, the word of God is saying here, renders human beings without Christ as being spoiled, rotten, and good for nothing. And it's not hard for us to understand why, because you see, what sin does is that it places man in a condition of death. Death. The fact is, even while he is physically alive, the sobering truth that he is dead in trespasses and sins, which makes him loathsome in the eyes of the holy and righteous God of heaven. We have seen that under the dominion of sin, then humanity is ignorant of God, is indisposed to seeking God. Humanity ignores God under the dominion of sin. Humanity is ineffective for God's use. Now, sixthly, humanity under the power of sin is irreverent toward God, is irreverent toward God. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God means to have, first of all, a right understanding of who he is as disclosed in the scriptures. We cannot fear God unless we know what scripture says of him. But it also means that with this knowledge, we revere him, we esteem him. And where there's true reverence for God, where there's true fear of God, there will of necessity be a posture of humility before him whereby there will be a bowing in awe of his sovereignty, his majesty, his glory. There will be a sense of one's sinfulness. We, if we truly fear God, we're going to come to see ourselves. Look at Isaiah. When he saw the glory and sovereignty and majesty of God, he says, Woe is me. We cannot truly fear God without coming to see our, our sinfulness. There will be a recognition of, the, of who God is in all his holiness. 
So that the declaration that there is no fear of God before the eyes of those who are outside of Christ, those who are under the dominion of sin, means, among other things, that God is not first and foremost in their thoughts, in their decisions, in their whole way of life. They live their lives in autonomy of God, without a sense of need for God, without a sense of accountability to God. Now, once again, you will hear many an unsaved person talk, of the, of the, you know, they say how much they fear God. And yes, they might show deep reverence, deep fear, respect for the things of God. But from God's standpoint, they're not. From God's standpoint, they do not truly fear him. Because Titus chapter 1 verse 16 says this. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So here's the point. While they are professing loyalty to God, reverence to God, fear for God... They're not saved. They have no interest in serving God. They will not turn their lives over to God. They will not come under his lordship. While they verbally confess the Lord, they do not do the things the Lord commands. Luke 6, 46. That's what our Lord Jesus said. Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And so the ill effects of man under the dominion of sin are clearly seen, as we have seen this morning, in man's distorted relationship with God. Man under the power of sin has a skewed relationship with God. His relationship with God is distorted. His relationship with God is completely haywire. It's completely out of sync. And do you know this? We have not even begun to examine from our passage the damaging effects of sin on man himself. The damaging effects of sin on man's relationship to man. Sin, very quickly, notice what it does to man. What it does to the sinner, sin defiles the mouth of men. Sin defiles the mouth of men, according to verses 13 and 14, so that their tongues are deceptive. That's why people lie. There are people today who have given lie an art form and they have institutionalized it. Their tongues are deceptive and most dangerous, like the poison of snakes. Their mouths, the word of God tells us, gives off, give, give off curses and all that spells bitterness. Their feet are inclined toward hastening to that which is harmful and hurtful to others, according to verse 15. Indeed, their hearts, verses 16 and 17, are devoid of peace, purpose, and meaning. All of these descriptions of humanity under the power of sin, my friend, says this, that not only does sin distort man's relationship with God, but sin defiles and corrupts man's heart, man's life. It damages his relationship with his fellow men. I want to close by saying this this morning. You know, from these sweeping declarations, somebody will say, well, are you saying, Patrick, that some of the things he's saying here, do they really apply to me? Like their feet are swift to shedding blood. Do they really apply to me? Must the Bible be taken literally when it says all are under the power of sin? And notice what Paul does. Their mouths, their mouths, this and their feet. That Does that apply to me? Here's the point. We may not all be guilty of all of these sins. But here's the truth of the word of God. According to the word of God, the germ of these sins lie at the very core and center of our being. For out of the heart of man, Jesus said, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, thefts, fornications, and so on. And here's the truth. That is why the Bible says, you see, 
Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things who can know it. That is why the book of Proverbs says, the one who trusts in his heart is a fool. My friends, you don't know what you are capable of outside of Jesus Christ. We, listen, those of us who are saved, we can only thank God for what he saved us from. Because as we have often said, you have often heard me say, and you know this very well, that every single one of us has the potential, given the right setting, given the right opportunity, given the right set of circumstances, we are capable of any sin. I could tell you tales of people who taught me in Sunday school when I was a little boy, and I could tell you about their life story, and you would be horrified, you would be shocked. Sin is a power. Sin is a power from which we need to be delivered and the best of us can be overtaken by it, by, by it even as Christians. That's why, here's the good news, because this message, you see, could drive many to discouragement. The good news, that's where the gospel comes in, that our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world for this purpose, to take it out of the way once for all. And this he did when he died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he effectively, fully, finally, Paid not only for sins, but what he did, he broke the power of sin. Praise God. Hallelujah to the Lamb that was slain. And all God's people say, Amen. That's the good news of the gospel. This is what we need to take to heart.